Hey guys, this is Pastor Neil. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. Hey, would you do us a huge favor today? Would you subscribe, like, or leave us a review wherever you get this content? It really helps us reach other people with the gospel. Also, we would love, love to see you at our campus uh, on a Sunday morning. We meet at 1010 South Bowie Drive in Weatherford, Texas. You can check out our service times and more information about the church on our on our website, waterhousechurch.com. Check us out on Facebook or any other social media sites that you may have. We would love to see you. I pray that today you are renewed, restored, refreshed, and that your spirit comes alive. Now here is today's message. Good morning. It is great to be here. And it is an incredible privilege to have the chance to do this again. I think the last time I was up here was back in February sometime. Anyway, <clears throat> as Christian said, I'm a Bible translator, and because of that, I, I love the Bible. I love studying it because it's, it's probably the most amazing book ever created. And I never, bore, I never get bored in it. I always find new things. I don't care how long you study a particular book, you're always going to find something new every time you open it up. And to, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at a, one of my favorite letters is the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to, let me just open in word of prayer. Father, we are, we're here this morning uh, to worship you. We thank you for your presence always. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here, to uh, have all these people together that we can uh, open your word we come with open minds and hearts wanting to learn from you. I ask that your spirit would be speaking to us from this letter to the Ephesians and that we would uh, learn more about who we are and who you are. We want to commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when I was a little kid, I was pigeon-toed. Hard to believe, huh? Uh, mainly my right foot. And every time I'd walk, my right foot was turning inward and it would make me trip. Running was even worse because if I wasn't thinking about it, you start running and your foot comes up, grabs your back of your leg, and you tumble down. And of course, you're, you're more injured than if you were walking. And I decided that I didn't like the falling down constantly. So I decided in my mind that I was going to stop being pigeon-toed. You know what I had to do? It didn't happen overnight. I had to think about it. Every time I was walking, I had to think about my right foot, push it out, push it out, constantly thinking about it every day, every time I was walking. And over a period of time, my foot was straight. It was no longer turning in. And I didn't have to think about it. I just automatically did it. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about the word walk. And as my message is entitled to walk through Ephesians. The reason being, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul uses the word walk more than any other letter that he's written. And it's found five times in chapters four and five. And there's a reason for that. They're all connected. They're all talking about how we live. So his letter to the Ephesians, you could split it in half. And he does this sometimes in other letters too. The first three chapters are, you, you won't, if you read it, you're not going to see any commands. There's no commands at all. The reason being, his focus is on who we are in Christ. He wants, to, he wants the reader to know, he wants us to know our identity in Christ. 
Then the second half of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is nothing but commands. Almost every verse is a command. And so what now he's focusing on is what we are to do, how we are to live out who we are in Christ. And that's how he organized the book. And so to be able to do those commands in 4, 5, and 6, you have to know who you are. And this was my problem. I've been a Christian for 46 years. And I, I just assumed that one day I'd get up and I'd be a different person. It never happened. And I was trying to do chapters 4, 5, and 6 with the commands without fully believing and knowing who I was in Christ. And if you don't do that, you're just going to be frustrated. You can't do these things that Paul is asking us to do if you don't know who you are. If, and it's not just knowing who you are. It's believing what God thinks about us. When we have that figured out, the other falls into place. So throughout the book of Ephesians, um, he uses this phrase, in Christ. And I've used it several times already. Basically, what he means by that is that we're united with Christ. We're joined with him. If you've become a Christian, you're joined with Christ. And what's true of Christ is true of you. He died on a cross. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So we also were crucified with Christ. And then he was buried. In baptism, Romans 6 tells us we were buried with Jesus. And then when we come up out of the water, just like when Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised to newness of life. So that's an important phrase in this whole, this whole letter. We belong to him. And I, we don't have time this morning for me to go through all of, the, all of the book of Ephesians. If we did, we'd be here till tonight, maybe longer, and my voice wouldn't last that long. So I can only give you a brief summary of the first three chapters. So in the first chapter, he starts off with that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in, in Christ. So because we're in Christ, he's given us everything we need. Nobody in this room is lacking. If you know Jesus, you are not lacking. He's given you everything you need. I used to think, what more, what more, what more? No, he's given us everything. He also tells us that we were chosen to be blameless and pure. He adopted us as children. He redeemed us. He has justified us. He loves us. And he sealed us with his spirit. And what he means by that is in the first century, when someone sealed something, what they were doing is basically marking that thing for ownership. So by giving us his spirit, he was marking us for ownership. He owns us. We were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are his. Then we come to chapter 2. He starts talking about what they were like before and what they're like now that they, they're believers. And one of the things he says in chapter 2 is that they, we, we were dead in our trespasses. But God, rich in his mercy, gave us new life. And so they're, they're, we are the same as the Ephesians. Before Christ, we were dead in our trans trespasses. Now we're alive in Christ. So for those, those ideas from the first three chapters, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe what it says about us? Because when, when you read this chapter, especially chapter 1, it says you, you, put in the word I and me. Because if you don't believe what he's saying, you can't move on to chapter 4. And 
Do you believe what God thinks about you, the way he sees you? I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that, but it's really important. If you want to see real transformation in your life, you have to go through this process of, of believing, truly believing what God thinks about you. So let's go over to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now, you notice how he starts that? He says, therefore. How many of you skip that word? Every time you read through it, you don't even stop and think about it. Let me see your hands. How many of you hate grammar, so you don't even think about the word therefore? When you see the word therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. <laughs> it's, it's important. <laughs> and so, in this case, it's basically everything in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Who we are in Christ, because we belong to Jesus, therefore, we are to do this. And this is the way you got to think. I'm a, I'm a grammar nerd, I'm a Bible nerd, and I look at this thing. Every time I look at any passage, this is the way I'm looking at it. And so he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the, for the Lord, he appeals to his, the fact that he had been in prison for, for the Lord. And because of that, he has authority as an apostle and status to be able to tell them what they need to be doing. And it's the same for us. He's telling us what we need to be doing. And then he says, uh, I urge you. Okay, it's not an exact command. But when he says urge, he really means it. He really wants them to do this. And he really wants us to do it. And then he says, walk worthy of the calling you have received. So what does he mean by walk? We use it all the time. We, in fact, somebody used it earlier. I think it was Henry. Walk the walk. We use that constantly. It's, it's figurative language. It's not literal. When we talk about our spiritual walk, we're not talking about doing this, you know, and how we're actually walking. You know, I walk like this or I walk like that. It's part of what we call a metaphor. A metaphor is where you compare something in this life with something else. They have similarities between them. He eats like a pig. That's a simile. But he is a pig. That's a metaphor. There's something about a pig that is the same as this person. And we can pick out the, the attributes there. But what, what the, the metaphor is, is life is a journey. Have you ever heard that? Life is a journey. Not literally, but figuratively. And so I want you to picture in your mind, we're on this path. Every one of us, we're on this path. And Jesus is on this path, so the path is lit up. We can see where we're going. And to the, either side of the path are rabbit trails, distractions, things that will draw us away from Jesus. And this path, sometimes it's going uphill, and man, it's tough going up it sometimes. And then sometimes we're almost running because it's going downhill so fast, and life is just so wonderful. And that's the kind of the figure that we're looking at. And we're walking on that path. That's our walk, how we live, how we conduct ourselves, our behavior. That's what he's talking about here. So when he says, walk uh, worthy of the calling you have received, what, what calling is he talking about? He's talking about the invitation that, he, that God has given each one of us to be in a relationship with him, to be part of his family, the family of God. And if we have accepted that invitation, we are in Christ. We are joined with him. And then he says, to walk in a walk worthy of the calling. When he says worthy, it's it's the idea of being in an appropriate way. 
you walk in a way that matches who we are. So you want to live your life in a way that, that reflects our being in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. So you could translate it and say, I urge you to live or conduct your life in an appropriate manner that, that is befitting of the invitation of being in the family of God. So there are certain things that are not appropriate for people that are in, in his family. And that's the way he's talking about, uh, that's what he's talking about here. Well, what does that look like? He goes on in verses 2 and 3. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Now, when he says, with all humility and gentleness, those two words in Greek are very, very similar. There's just minor differences. Humility, it's the attitude that we all have equal value in God's sight. So when we're on this path, we're all the same. Now, the differences are some people have been on the path a long time. So they're, they're way ahead of us. And there are some people that are just starting and they're behind us. And there are some people that have got on there and then they've gotten off the track and we try to pull them back on. And with humility, we look at that and we, we're all the same. There's no room for arrogance. I can't be arrogant and look at the person behind me who's just starting and say, what, what, what's with you? Why can't you get going? Every one of us are in a different spot. So on this path, you can see people all clumped together and some are further on, some are lagging back. But everything we have has come from God. So I can't boast about where I am on this path. It's all because of what God is doing in me that got me to where I was. And I'm always looking forward, fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, that I'm going to focus on him and always he is my example. And with humility, I can then reach out to others around me. Because on this, on this path, it's not a race to see who can finish first. We all want to finish together. We all want to get to the end. So we want to help those who are maybe lagging behind. We may look at the people ahead of us. They may be such a great example. We want to follow them and imitate them as well. And that's all right. But we always keep our eyes on Jesus. So that's humility. Gentleness, the opposite is harshness. You know, it's really easy to look at somebody who's not doing well and, come on, just get up. You know, that, that's not what he's wanting us to do. It's never weakness. Gentleness, never think of it as weakness. Um, it's conscious exercise of self-control. Keeping your temper down. You don't let it loose. Willing to give up one's rights. I don't have to be right. Every one of us have to have that mentality. I don't have to be right. Because see, when we have to be right, that's where argument comes, division comes. And... Our goal is the common good. That's why we're always trying to help those who are, who are ha having that difficult time when they start going up the hill and they're not making it. We want to be around to help them. It's being angry at the right time and never anger, angry at the wrong time. That's really an important aspect of that. And then the, the next thing he talks about is with patience. And patience, I think we all know it. You pray for patience and everything goes wrong. Isn't that the way we usually think about it? Um, yeah, well, the, the, the Greek word means long-tempered. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew means long-nosed. Because in Hebrew, 
Anger is with the nose. Steam comes out the nose when you're angry. So when you see God is slow to anger, that's what they're talking about. He's patient. And what it means is it takes a long time before the anger is expressed. And that's the idea of patience. You're forbearing people. You're uh, looking at people and you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. You endure wrongs. Even though it looks like everything inside you screams, wait a minute, he wronged me. And you desperately would like to argue with it. No, you, you drop it. You don't let it affect you. Then he goes on, he says, accepting one another in love. Love is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. If you read through it, you'll see it occurs many, many times because it was important. It was important to the body of believers at Ephesus. It's important to our unity here. And with um, accepting one another in love, it's actually enduring or bearing with people. So no matter where somebody is, you endure it because you don't know where the person is at. They may be going through the toughest time of their life and, that, and it comes out the wrong way. So we have to be able to endure with them and bear with it. And possibly we need to ask, what's going on? That, that, that doesn't sound like you. But love is not a feeling. It is an action. And we were just talking about this a few weeks ago in our men's group and it, we'll, we'll talk about this some more when we get into the, the, the other uh, commands about walk. Um, accepting one another in love is also uh, showing self-control at times. So then uh, he goes on to the next one. It's diligently keeping the unity in the spirit. When you see diligently, that's make every effort. That means that, that bad four-letter word, work. It doesn't just happen. We have unity right now in this church, which is fantastic. We want to diligently keep it and maintain it. We want to preserve that unity. And the reason being, the more unified we are as a body, people are watching. They hear about a church. The more unified we are, the more effective and the more impact we will have for the kingdom. Because people are going to look at us and say, I want that. That's fantastic. And so unity is a major thing that Paul talks about. He, it, it occurs in so many of his letters. And in this letter, he will spend from verse 4 to 16 talking about how we are one. One Father, one baptism, one Lord, one Savior. We're all in this together. And so he says, you have to work at it. I want you unified. And so that, that's an important point, and that's part of that walking in a manner that's worthy of our calling. So that's the first one. Going to the second one, we're going to skip down to 417. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Okay, we'll stop there. See that word, therefore? What is it there for? This time, this word often has the meaning, I'm resuming what I was talking about earlier. This goes back to verse 1, the walk command there. So he's tying them together using this one little word. And in this, this verse, he says, I say this, this pointing forward to what he's going to say, and testify. This word testify, it's a bad translation to say testify here. It really is urge or insist, very similar to verse 1. And because he says, I say this and urge you or insist, it makes it very, very emphatic, very strong language in the Greek. And notice he says, in the Lord. 
That's the same as in Christ. So he's appealing to the fact that he too is united with Jesus. And because of that, he has the authority and status to tell them, this is what you should be doing. And he goes on to say then, uh, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. This is an unusual one because out of the five walk commands, this is the only negative one. And it's strange because he says Gentiles. Now, the church at Ephesus was made up predominantly with Gentile believers. And a Gentile is an uncircumcised person who is not part of the covenant people. He's not Jewish. So is he telling them, don't be a Gentile? I mean, how do you stop being a Gentile? That's what they are. They're not Jewish. Well, I think what he's getting at here is that when they came to Christ, they did stop being Gentiles. Because when they're in Christ, same as us, we are Abraham's descendants, his true descendants. We are the people of God. Do you ever think of yourself that way? Abraham is our father. And because of that, technically, we are not Gentiles anymore. And because of that, Paul says, stop living like them. You're not that anymore. If you read chapters 1 to 3, you would know that you're not a Gentile anymore. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. And so you're not supposed to do that anymore. And when he says no longer, that implies that he's been, they, they're still doing it. And so he's having to tell them to stop. And we know that because if you go to Acts 19, we read about how the Ephesian believers were burning their magic books. Now, these aren't magic books like pulling a quarter out of his ear or a rabbit out of a hat. This is real magic that they, they try to influence nature and things around them, control things through magic and sorcery, witchcraft. And they were still practicing it even though they had come to Christ. So he's telling them here, stop doing that. But you know, even today, some people come into the church, they accept Christ, but they continue living like they were Gentiles because they haven't learned the first three chapters of Ephesians. And so it applies to us today, too. We have to drop that aspect of our, our lives. Well, what does it look like to be a Gentile? He goes on to explain it very graphically. He says, uh, finishing off verse 17, he says, uh, walk as the Gentiles, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. So that sounds pretty bleak. So when he says in the futility of their thoughts, futility means meaningless, useless. Their thoughts are useless. You ever think about where we came from? I know before I came to Christ, my thoughts were useless. They were meaningless. You know why? I thought about trivial things. And those trivial things usually dealt with me, myself, and I. Self-centeredness. And that's kind of the idea that he's talking about here. They basically, uh, they, they were not able to perceive God's revelation. The, the very thing their minds were created and designed to do, they're not able to do it. They're just meaningless, random thoughts that, that, that fo they focus on. Then he goes on to say uh, they're darkened in their understanding. This is an idiom. And if you think about this path again that's all lit up, they're off the sides. They're off on the sides where it's dark. And if you're in darkness, you guys, you know, we, we don't really know what true darkness is. When we were working in Papua New Guinea in the village, on nights where it was cloudy, 
You can't see your hand in front of your face. It is so dark. That's what you're living in as Gentiles. And they're, they're off this path in this darkness. They haven't a clue about life. They can't. They can't grasp the truth because they're in darkness, stumbling around. And the opposite, of course, is where we are on this path that's enlightened by Jesus. And we can see what, what we're doing. Then he goes on and he says, excluded from the life of God. Well, as a Gentile, that's true. They're not the covenant people. They're outside the covenant. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think it goes back to the Garden of Eden. You remember Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. So God tosses them out of the garden and he puts a guard at the entrance, barring them from the tree of life. The tree of life is where they got immortality. And by being barred from going back in, the result is death, just as God had promised them. He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So now they are destined to die. And furthermore, they're separated from God. Before in the garden, they had fellowship with God. Now they're separated from God. Now you have this self-preservation. And what comes from self-preservation is self-centeredness. It's all about me surviving. And that's what humanity has been doing ever since until we have Christ. And he says that that's due to their ignorance, the ignorance that is in them. This is foolishness, what he's talking about here. And uh, they fail to be grateful to the Creator and can't understand the truth about God. And he goes on and says the other reason is hardness of heart. That's basically stubbornness. And it's a stubbornness to willfully ignore God. They have no excuse. excuse. Romans 1 tells us they have no excuse. Uh, so this is the, the, this bleak picture of where all of us were at one point. And when you go on to verse 19, it gets worse. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. This was written 2,000 years ago. But if I was reading this, if I had never seen this before and read this, I could match it up with pretty much all the headlines in today's news. It's like it's still happening, the exact same thing. He talks about they, they became callous. We all know what calluses are. Those of you who work with your hands, your hands have these calluses across here. When we were in Papua New Guinea, we were on an island with white sand. You know what happens to white sand in the hot sun? It's like fire. And when I walk on it the first time, we're... And I decided I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to let, let it hurt, but I'm not going to let them laugh at me anymore. Because they grow up from the time they're a baby, and their skin, it's like on The Hobbit. You know, it's this thick callus. <laughs> They don't feel anything. And I felt their hands before. I mean, it's just this thick callus because they're always using their hands. That's what he's talking about. There's no feeling. These guys have no feeling of shame or embarrassment for what they're doing. They've become calloused. And it's really a lack of moral feeling and discernment. That's what happens. The further you are away from God, that's what happens to a person's thinking. And what's worse is, they desire it more and more, all the stuff that they're doing. And that's what we're seeing happening in our society right now. It makes I would think the Corinthians would blush from what we're seeing today. You have to know the, the story behind the Corinthians. They were pretty bad. But now, that's how Gentiles are. What about us? He goes on in verses 20 to 24. Here I'm going to switch from the Holman Christian Standard Bible to uh, 
the ESV. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, what's interesting about this at the beginning, he says, that's not the way you learned Christ. Typically, when we think of the word learn, we think of learning a book or learning content of something, not a person. So what's he mean by learning Christ? Well, this quote from Peter O'Brien, I think he captures the meaning of it really well. He says, learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. This involves submitting to his rule of righteousness and responding to his summons to standards and values completely different from what they have known. So as he says here, learning Christ, it's, it's welcoming Jesus into our lives. And we expect then his teaching is to change us. It's to mold us and shape us into the person he wants us to be. And then uh, he says, he mentions the standards and values. You think about the standards and values of Jesus. They're diametrically opposed to what I just read about the Gentiles. And that's the way we were. We're invited to take up these new values and new standards of living, a new way to live our life, a new way to walk. And that's what he's wanting of us. So he, he says that, that that's how they learn Christ. He gives three things that he talks about in, in terms of what they were taught, the Ephesians were taught by Paul. And the first one is to put off the old self. That's that, the old self is the former way of living. So to put off is a word used for taking off your clothes. So picture with me, I've, I've been working in the garage, I got this shirt on, I've used it for painting, who knows how many times it has about 20 different shades of paint on it. I've ripped it, I've got holes in it, I've got grease stains, and worse yet, it stinks. Now am I going to take that off, put it on a coat hanger and put it in my closet? Of course not, because you all know my wife would kill me for stinking up the closet. No, that, that's not, it's not good for anything. We take it off, we get rid of it. Throw it away. Our old self was crucified with Christ. Paul's even more graphic in, in Colossians. He says, put it to death. Get rid of it. It's not who we are. So why do we want to get up each morning and put on these old clothes that stink? You know, everybody's like, get away. That's what it, it really is. It just stinks. Our old self stunk. Why would we want to continue with that? So this is a, an idiom, a, kind of a figurative speech here. So the old worn-out clothes, we want to get rid of them. Our old self is to take it off. And then he says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's basically our minds are being renewed by the spirit. So as we get rid of that old self, the spirit begins working in our minds, transforming the way we think. And in conjunction with that is the third thing, to put on the new self. And again, to put on is the word used in Greek for putting on clothes. So this new self, it's great. Look at what he says about it. He says it was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Our new clothes are righteousness and holiness. Who would not want to put on that and live with that? Nice smelling clothes. They look good. Much better than what I had before. And you can't put them both on. 
Why would you want to put on a stinky shirt and then put something nice over it, trying to hide it? It still stinks. So how do we do that? This is where I had the most difficulty. I, like I said earlier, I've been a Christian for 46 years. And all this time, I believed the lies. I didn't believe what he said in the first three chapters. I saw it in other people, and I thought, yeah, it's true for them, but not for me. And because of that, I lived frustrated. I got angry. I was very negative, complaining. Just ask Roxanne. She can testify. She's already nodding. <laughs> and that's, that was who I was. That's who I thought I was. And I, I translated the entire New Testament. I'm translating the Old Testament, and I didn't see it until I came here to this church, to the men's group. Mike's not here this morning, but because of the men's group, what Mike was talking about, and you men, if you're not coming out to the men's group, please come. It's an amazing group. I have never attended a men's group before until I came here. And it has been so helpful to learn how to be a better father and husband. And so many of the men who have been attending it, I, I know they have changed too. So I start attending this, and Mike is talking about this stuff. And he introduces us to Dan Moeller and watching some of his videos, discussing it. And I start watching his videos every morning. And I come across one of them where he's, he's talking about how to do this because he did it himself. And I, I couldn't stop listening to it. Every morning I got up, I was listen, watching this thing as I cooked my breakfast, thinking, oh my goodness, this is incredible. So here's what he said to do, and I started doing it. He said, you get up in the morning, the first thing to do is you talk to God and say, thank you that no one owes me anything. I owe everybody love and respect. Thank you for making me your child. Thank you for loving me. And this is something that Mike helped me to see. He, he said, do you see Jesus in your mind looking at you and saying, I love you. I love you. Over and over and over. And this is where I was. And getting this, finally. He said, you do this in the morning. First thing, instead of beating myself up and thinking about the past, I think about where I'm going. How many of you walk like this? <laughs> if you do that, you're going to fall. It's just, it's just naturally going to happen. You focus on where you're going, not on the past. And I focused on everything I've done, beating myself to a pulp. I don't know how many of you have done that. You, you make a mistake and you just beat yourself up and beat yourself up. And all Jesus is saying, I forgive you. Move on, get up. You know, when you watch a, a, a toddler learning how to walk, you ever see him fall down and say, oh, I'm staying here. This is just ridiculous. Every time I get up, I fall down. You know, it's easier just to stay on the ground. That's where I was living, on the ground. There's a point where you have to learn how to be like a toddler. You get up, you make a mistake. Okay, I'm going to continue walking. And you, you watch toddlers, they all do it. They get back up and they start at 100 miles an hour fall down again, get back up and start running. And I had to start learning that because I, I didn't understand how this worked. And all of a sudden, this comes to life. If you're like me, you get into Ephesians chapter 1. Read it until you start believing what it says about you. 
Put your name in there. Put I in there. God loves me. God loves me. And hear him saying that to you over and over and over again until you start believing. And when you start believing it, then chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's not just a bunch of rules. This is what I want. This is what I, how I want to live because it helps me. And I become the person that Jesus wants me to be. That's what we want to try to see happen. So let's skip down to 432. The end of the chapter, he, at the end of this section, he says, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So being kind and compassionate is part of not living like a Gentile. It's living the way God wants us to. And part of that is forgiving one another. We cannot have unity in this church if there's unforgiveness. Unforgiveness kills us. And it will create division, and it will break the church down. It is the most important aspect of our, our being here together is that unity. And notice, too, he says, uh, uh, forgiving one another, the basis for doing that, our example, is God. God forgave us, so we forgive others. And that, that I think, everybody in here knows. But notice at the end, he says, he forgave us in Christ. Because we're in Christ, because we're joined with Jesus, he forgives us. When he sees us, he sees Jesus. And that's really important because the next thing we're going to talk about in 5.1, 5.2 is the next command. There is the therefore again. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us, gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So he says, be imitators of God. Well, that sounds rather daunting. <laughs> But remember, he doesn't say that we're, we're trying to be God. We're not God. We'll never be God. That's what Satan tried to do. Instead, we're to imitate him. And we know it's possible because Paul is telling them to do it. He wouldn't say these things if he didn't think that we could do them. But the only way we can do them is if we understand who we are. And the basis for imitating God, he says, is as dearly loved children. God loves us dearly. And if we believe that, then we want to imitate him. How do we imitate him? He goes on in verse 2, and walk in love. Because God is love. That's how we're supposed to live then. We're imitating God. And the basis for our walking in love is the Messiah uh, also loved us. So Jesus loved us. We're to use that as an example, and we walk in love. Again, the walk has the idea of how we behave, the way we live. And when we think about love, love, walk in love, it's the being controlled by love, uh, directed by love. It's like it's, it's, it drives us. So many years ago, a pastor friend of mine we were in some kind of conversation about, I, I don't remember the topic, but I remember him asking me a rhetorical question. He said, um, why do you translate the Bible? And before I could answer, and I'm glad I waited, um, before I answered, he said, it's because you love God, right? Well, that's not what went through my mind. What went through my mind was because people need to hear about Jesus. But he was right. You, the, the people who are volunteering in the church here, you do it because you love God, not because it helps the church or it helps somebody come in here and feel welcome. You do it because you love God. That should be the basis. 
I had totally missed it. I was so glad I didn't say anything. You would have looked at me like, what? Page three. So God loves us. He accepts us. And, and because of the cross, Jesus dying on the cross. And see, Jesus demonstrates that love. He says it right there. He gave himself for us. Remember in Romans? He demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If it was just you or me on this planet, Jesus still would have died. That's how much he loves us. So what is love? I, okay, you got it up there, good. Um, this is my acronym. I know, it's corny, SAC. <laughs> but you'll remember it because it is corny. Selfless acts of charity and kindness. We were talking about this, like I said, uh, a few weeks ago in the men's group. Mike brought up the question, what is love? And I was working on this at the time. I just thought it was amazing, great timing. And I thought this through, and I, I, I thought, wow, that is a really difficult question. But the more I thought about it, this is what, what God gave me, selfless acts of charity and kindness. It's basically we're giving our way ourselves without expecting anything in return. And that's what God's done with us. We can't give him anything except for our loyalty. Um, but language is messy. And so to answer his question, the difficulty in English is because we have just this one word, love. Now, trust me on this, that loving a hamburger and loving God are not the same. <laughs> they really aren't. I don't care how you try to spin that, they are not the same. So our, our English language doesn't differentiate between all these ideas of love. Greek has four different words that could be translated as love. Storge, which isn't even found in the New Testament, it's familial love. And notice I have to put another word with love to tell you which kind of love it is. It's love between a parent and a child. And then there's eros, which is where we get our word erotic. And that's the love between a husband and a wife. It's a, it's a, a close bond. There's nothing like it. And then there's um, phileo or philos, which is what we have here, brotherly and sisterly love that we show towards one another in this room. And then there's the one that everybody knows about, agape. And that one is the one that's used often with God and uh, how he loves us. And that's what we are supposed to show in this word sack, selfless acts of charity and kindness. Because when we love according to the agape love, it's not inward. It's not about you or me. It's we look out to others. We're doing something for other people, not ourselves. That's why it's selfless. Our lives, uh, sorry, I wanted to go on to uh, verses 3 to 5. He starts off, he says, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints coarse and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this. Every sexually immoral or impure greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. This puzzled me. He just got through talking about love. Then he says, but sexual immorality. I didn't see it. And I, I was sitting one morning praying and looking at this, God, what in the world is the connection between these verses? And all of a sudden, it hit me like a ton of bricks. 
Love is selfless, right? What he's talking about in these verses, three to five, is self-centeredness. This kind of thing is a taking away from other people. It's not selfless. And that's why he put it in here. He's saying you're to walk in love, being selfless, doing, looking to others' interests more than your own, not being self-indulgent and focusing on yourself and committing this kind of stuff. That's the difference that he, and that's why he put the word but in there. It contrasts these two ways of life. And that was exciting to see that. So our lives should be characterized by love, not by sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Those things are not suitable for those who are set apart for God. And that's the point he's trying to make. So let's go on to the next one, 515. He says, um, sorry, 57. Therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. So there's that therefore again, pointing back to the last command in verse 1 and 2. And he's resuming his talk about the walk. And do not become their partners. He's talking about what was the people in verse 6, which were disobedient people. Don't be partnered with them. You partner with them, you're going to become like them. Instead, he says, and he actually explains then why, for you were once darkness. He doesn't say in darkness. He says you were darkness. In other words, they embodied darkness before they came to Christ. By their very nature, they were darkness. Darkness is symbolic of death, evil, and everything that's opposed to God. That's where they were. That was their very nature. But now, see, now things have changed. Once they're in Christ, now everything's a different situation. For now you are in light, in the Lord. See the in the Lord? Because you're in Christ, you're joined to Christ, you are light. Not in the light, but light. You embody light. Your whole nature is light now because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. How could you be anything but that? So then he says, um, so walk, now walk in the light. Or walk, yeah, walk in the light in verse... uh, Verse 8, walk as children of light. Children of light is the same idea as you are light. It it means you are characterized by light. So live in in that realm. Live like that. And what is light for? It's for shining. What are we shining? We're shining Jesus out into the world. That's the way we're supposed to be living, conducting our lives in such a way that it just, people look at us and they see like floodlights. There's something different about this person. They lit up. That kind of idea. So um, he, he ends it with, you know, walk in the light and at the very end, verse 10, discerning what is pleasing, acceptable to God. That, that's what happens when we're walking in light is that we're able to discern what's acceptable to God. And basically he's saying to be able to choose what is most important, to understand how to live in an appropriate, God-oriented way in all situations. This is something that I just didn't get before. I let circumstances and what people said about me 
determine who I was instead of what scripture was saying. So every circumstance, I was only as good as what the circumstances were. If I had a bad day or if things were going wrong, which it seemed like for a while, everything bad that could happen was happening. And instead of seeing it as an opportunity, I was, I was letting it dictate who I was. And I wasn't walking in light like I should. Okay, let's skip down to the last one. 5.15. He says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. We'll stop there for a second. So now he's being very forceful by saying, pay careful attention. And the therefore is actually there. It's when it says then, that's the word therefore there. He's connecting it back. Pay careful attention to how you walk. How are you living? This, is, this command is basically to, to kind of look at yourself. And, how am I doing? How am I walking? I want to pay careful attention. Just like when I was trying to stop the pigeon toe in my right foot, I have to think about it. I have to pay careful attention how I'm putting my foot down, always forcing it out. And he's saying, do the same thing with your spiritual life. Look at how you're walking. Don't just go to default. We're not like computers. You go to default, you're going to be like the Gentiles. You have to think. It's something that it's living intentionally. And you have to use your mind and you have to make this a part of your routine every day. So he says, he's making this urgent here and he says, um, conduct your life as a wise person, not as an unwise person. Now, wisdom or being wise, go to Proverbs if you want to learn about that. Wisdom in the Hebrew mind is living well. It's being skillful in living. Have you ever thought about that? Being skillful in the way you live? There are some people that know how to do that. And the wise person is the one who knows how to do that. They know how to live correctly. And what we've been talking about in walking is exactly what he's talking about here. And so he says at the end there, making the most of your time. That's, that's how you're going to pay attention. You're making the most of your time. Uh, he, he describes that it's, it's utilizing our time wisely. Um, every circumstance is an opportunity to shine for Jesus. And like I said earlier, that's where I was struggling. I wasn't looking at the circumstances and saying, hey, this is an opportunity. Do you guys look for, look for all these things that happen to you as opportunities? Opportunities? Perhaps somebody needs to hear from Jesus. We were talking about this in our men's group. Maybe someone needs to hear about Jesus. That's why you're there. Maybe that's why this happened. It took me forever to learn this. And I went through so many circumstances in Papua New Guinea where I just complained and complained, and God is saying, get a clue. There's a guy that needs something here. And that's what he's looking at here. So then he goes on at the end here, and this is our last one. Um, 17 and 18, he says, So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit. He's comparing wise and unwise again. So the first one, he says, So don't be foolish. That's the unwise person. And the foolishness he's talking about here is in the second part, understand what the Lord's will is. That's the wise person. The person who doesn't understand what the Lord's will is he is the unwise person. He's the fool. How do we know that? How do we know what God's will is and understand it? 
we look in Scripture and we apply it to our lives. We, we have time with him. His spirit is enlightening us as to what it is. Then he says the second one, and don't get drunk with wine or beer or anything like that. Why? Because if you do that, that's controlling you. That's an unwise person. That's the foolish person. And it's going to result in reckless actions. That's why he says, don't do that. Instead, be the wise person. Be filled with the Spirit. Because then you're controlled and empowered by the Spirit. You're the wise, the wise person. And if you're living in that way, then you're paying attention to what you're doing. And you're going to see success. And he actually says it uh, earlier on the, the light part, just the, the righteousness, the goodness that's part of, our, uh, part of living that way. So if I could have Christian come up and if the prayer team would like to come up, we can finish up here. So God wants our lives to reflect our new identity in Christ. That requires believing what God says about us and then following uh, Jesus. So three things I want you to get out of this. We've seen five different walks. Go back through the chapters four and five and, and look at those carefully. Most translations will say live. And three things. First, know who you are in Christ. If you don't have that, you can't go on to chapter four. You're just going to be frustrated. Second, you live out intentionally who you are. You have to think about it. You have to make decisions constantly. And then finally, fellowshipping with Jesus every day. Take time. Invite him into your workspace and be talking to him all day long. Thank you, God, for this situation. Every time I feel something coming on, a negative thought, I have to stop. That's not me. That's not me. I'm following Jesus. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross. And I refocus, redirect my, my thinking to him. That's the key to all of this. So maybe this morning, there's some of you who are like me. You've been on this path a long time, but you just didn't seem to be picking up how to do some of this stuff. If you are, come up here this morning and let these guys pray with you. Or maybe, maybe you've been on the path, but you got off. You took one of the rabbit trails and you got into the dark and you're trying to figure out how to get back to that path that was, was actually pretty nice when you were on it. Come up and get some prayer. We're maybe on this path where the hill's going up and it looks like the hill has taken a steep incline and you are struggling in your faith and you just don't see how your faith can be working at this point in your life. If you're in that position, come up here, get prayer. And maybe you've never even found the path. Maybe you've been off in the dark for so long you have no idea what the path even looks like. Come up, find out what Jesus is all about. These guys can pray with you. And uh, I thank you for your patience. I enjoy doing this. Um, I hope it's been a help to you guys. Thank you. <laughs>